I have a cherished painting in my office that is titled Entrance to Enlightenment. It was created by a friend of mine, the Danish artist Johan Bentin, who was the first state president in Copenhagen, Denmark. The painting shows a dark room with an open door from which light is shining. It is interesting to me that the light coming through the door does not illuminate the entire room, only the space immediately in front of the door. To me, the darkness and light in this painting are a metaphor for life. It is part of our condition as mortal beings to sometimes feel as though we are surrounded by darkness. We might have lost a loved one. A child might have strayed. We might have received a troubling medical diagnosis. We might have employment challenges and be burdened by doubts or by fears. Or we might feel alone or unloved. But even though we may feel lost in the midst of our current circumstances, God promises the hope of His light. He promises to illuminate the way before us and show us the way out of darkness. I'd like to tell you about a woman who grew up in a room filled with darkness. I'll call her Jane. From the time Jane was three years old, she was repeatedly beaten, belittled, and abused. She was threatened and mocked. She awoke each morning not knowing if she would survive until the next day. The people who should have protected her were those who tortured her or allowed the abuse to continue. In order to protect herself, Jane learned to stop feeling. She had no hope for, of rescue, so she hardened herself to the horror of her reality. There was no light in her world, so she became resigned to the darkness with a numbness that can only come from constant and unrelenting contact with evil. She accepted the fact that any moment might be her last. Then, at age 18, Jane discovered the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The joy and hope of the restored gospel penetrated her heart, and she accepted the invitation to be baptized. For the first time, light entered her life, and she saw a bright path before her. She left the darkness of her world and decided to attend school a great distance away from her abuser. At last, she felt liberated from an environment of darkness and evil, free to enjoy the Savior's sweet peace and miraculous healing. However, years later, after her abuser had died, Jane was again troubled by the horrible events of her youth. Profound sadness and anger threatened to destroy the wonderful light she had found in the gospel. She realized that if she allowed that darkness to consume her, her tormentor would have a final victory. 
She sought counseling and medical help and began to realize that for her, the best path for healing was to understand and accept that darkness exists, but not to dwell there. For as she now knew, light also existed, and that is where she chose to dwell. Given her dark, dark past, Jane could easily have become vindictive, venomous, or violent. But she didn't. She resisted the temptation to spread the darkness by lashing out in anger, hurt, or cynicism. Instead, she held fast to the hope that with God's help, she could be healed. She chose to radiate light and devote her life to helping others. This decision enabled her to leave the past behind and to step into a glorious, bright future. She became a schoolteacher, and today, decades later, her love has influenced the lives of hundreds of children, helping them to know that they have worth, that they are important. She has become a tireless defender of the weak, the victimized, and the discouraged. She builds, strengthens, and inspires everyone around her. Jane learned that healing comes when we move away from the darkness and walk toward the hope of a brighter light. It was in the practical application of faith, hope, and charity that she not only transformed her own life, but forever blessed the lives of many, many others. There may be some among you who feel darkness encroaching upon you. You may feel burdened by worry, fear, or doubt. To you and to all of us, I repeat a wonderful and certain truth. God's light is real. It is available to all. It gives life to all things. It has the power to soften the sting of the deepest wound. It can be a healing balm for the loneliness and sickness of our souls. In the furs of despair, it can plant the seeds of a brighter hope. It can enlighten the deepest valleys of sorrow. It can illuminate the path before us and lead us through the darkest night into the promise of a new dawn. This is the Spirit of Jesus Christ, which gives light to every man that cometh into the world. Nevertheless, spiritual light rarely comes to those who merrily sit in the darkness waiting for someone to flip the switch. It takes an act of faith to open our eyes to the light of Christ. Spiritual light cannot be discerned by carnal eyes. Jesus Christ himself taught, I am the light which shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehendeth it not. For the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. So, how do we open our eyes to the hope of God's light? First, 
start where you are. Isn't it wonderful to know that we don't have to be perfect to experience the blessings and gifts of our Heavenly Father? We don't have to wait to cross the finish line to receive God's blessings. In fact, the heavens begin to part and the blessings of heaven begin to distill upon us with the very first steps we take toward the light. The perfect place to begin is exactly where you are right now. It doesn't matter how unqualified you may think you are or how far behind others you may feel you are. The very moment you begin to seek your Heavenly Father, in that moment the hope of His light will begin to awaken, enliven, and ennoble your soul. The darkness may not dissipate it all at once. But as surely as night always gives way to dawn, the light will come. Second, turn your heart toward the Lord. Lift up your soul in prayer and explain to your Heavenly Father what you are feeling. Acknowledge your shortcomings. Pour out your heart and express your gratitude. Let Him know of the trials you are facing. Plead with Him in Christ's name for strength and support. Ask that your ears may be open, that you may hear His voice. Ask that your eyes may be open, that you may see His light. Third, walk in the light. Your Heavenly Father knows that you will make mistakes. He knows that you will stumble perhaps many times. This saddens Him, but He loves you. He does not wish to break your spirit. On the contrary, He desires that you rise up and become the person you were designed to be. To that end, His Son was sent to, on this earth to illuminate the way and show us how to safely cross the stumbling blocks placed in our path. He has given us the gospel, which teaches the way of the disciple. It teaches us the things we must know, do, and be to walk in His light, following in the footsteps of His beloved Son, our Savior. Yes, we will make mistakes. Yes, we will falter. But as we seek to increase our love for God and strive to love our neighbor, the light of the gospel will surround and uplift us. The darkness will surely fade because it cannot exist in the presence of light. As we draw near to God, He will draw near to us. And day by day, the hope of God's light will grow within us brighter and brighter until the perfect day. To all who feel they walk in darkness, I invite you to rely on this certain promise spoken by the Savior of mankind. I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Some years ago, my wife Harriet and I had a memorable experience in which we saw this promise fulfilled. We were in West Africa, a beautiful part of the world where the Church is growing and the Latter-day Saints are delightful. However, 
West Africa also has many challenges. In particular, I was sorrowed by the poverty that I saw. In the cities, there is high unemployment, and families often struggle to provide for their daily needs and for their safety. It broke my heart to know that many of our precious members of the Church live in such deprivation. But I also learned that these fine members help each other to lighten their heavy burden. We eventually arrived at one of our meeting houses near a large city. But instead of finding a people burdened and absorbed by darkness, we discovered a joyful people who were radiating with light. The happiness they felt for the gospel was contagious and lifted our spirits. The love they expressed for us was humbling. Their smiles were genuine and infectious. I remember wondering at the time if there could be possibly be a happier people on the face of the planet. Even though these dear saints were surrounded by difficulties and trials, they were filled with light. The meeting began and I started to speak, but soon the power went out in the building and we were left in complete darkness. For a while, I could hardly see anyone in the congregation, but I could see and feel the brilliant and beautiful smiles of our saints. Oh, how I love being with these wonderful people. The darkness in the chapel continued, and so I sat next to my wife and waited for the power to be restored. As we waited, something remarkable happened. A few voices began singing one of the hymns of the Restoration, and then others joined in, and then more. Soon, a sweet and overwhelming chorus of voices filled the chapel. These members of the Church did not need hymn books. They knew every word of every hymn they sang, and they sang one song after another with an energy and spirit that touched my soul. Eventually, the light sparked back on and bathed the room with light. Harriet and I looked at each other, our cheeks wet with tears. In the midst of great darkness, these beautiful, wonderful saints had filled this church building and our souls with light. It was a profoundly moving moment for us, one Harriet and I will never forget. Yes, from time to time, our lives may seem, may seem to be touched by or even wrapped in darkness. Sometimes the night that surrounds us will appear oppressive, disheartening, and frightening. My heart grieves for the many sorrows some of you face, for the painful loneliness and worrisome fears you may be experiencing. Nevertheless, I bear witness that our living hope is in Jesus Christ. He is the true, pure, and powerful entrance to divine enlightenment. I testify that with Christ, darkness cannot succeed. Darkness will not gain victory over the light of Christ. I bear witness that darkness cannot stand before the brilliant light 
of the Son of the Living God. I invite each of you to open your heart to Him. Seek Him through study and prayer. Come to His Church, even the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Learn of Him and and of His Gospel. Participate actively. Help each other and joyfully serve our God. Brothers and sisters, even after the darkest night, the Savior of the world will lead you to a gradual, sweet, and bright dawn that will assuredly rise within you as you walk toward the hope of God's light. You will discover the compassion, love, and goodness of a loving Heavenly Father in whom there is no darkness at all. Of this I testify in the sacred name of Jesus Christ. Amen. My beloved brothers and sisters, how grateful I am to be with you this morning. I seek an interest in your faith and prayers as I respond to the privilege to address you. Throughout the ages, men and women have sought for knowledge and understanding concerning this mortal existence and their place and purpose in it, as well as for the way to peace and happiness. Such a search is taken by each of us. This knowledge and understanding are available to all mankind. They are contained in truths which are eternal. In Doctrine and Covenants, section 1, verse 39, we read, Behold and lo, the Lord is God, and the Spirit beareth record, and the record is true, and the truth abideth forever and ever. The poet wrote, Though the heavens depart and the earth's fountains burst, Truth, the sum of existence, will weather the worst, unchanged evermore. Some would ask, where is such truth to be found, and how are we to recognize it? In a revelation given to the prophet Joseph Smith at Kirtland, Ohio, in May of 1833, the Lord declared, Truth is knowledge of things as they are, and as they were and as they are to come, the spirit of truth is of God, and no man receiveth the fullness unless he keepeth his commandments. He that keepeth God's commandments and receiveth truth and light until he is glorified in truth and knoweth all things. What a glorious promise! He that keepeth God's commandments receiveth truth and light, till he is glorified in truth and knoweth all things. There is no need for you or for me in this enlightened age, when the fullness of the gospel has been restored, to sail uncharted seas or to travel unmarked roads in search of truth. A loving Heavenly Father has plotted our course and provided an unfailing guide, even obedience. 
a knowledge of truth, and the answers to our greatest questions come to us as we are obedient to the commandments of God. We learn obedience throughout our lives, beginning when we are very young. Those responsible for our care set forth guidelines and rules to ensure our safety. Life would be simpler for all of us if we would obey such rules completely. Many of us, however, learn through experience the wisdom of being obedient. When I was growing up each summer from early July until early September, my family stayed at our cabin at Vivian Park in Provo Canyon in Utah. One of my best friends during those carefree days in the canyon was Danny Larson, whose family also owned a cabin at Vivian Park. Each day, he and I roamed this boy's paradise, fishing in the stream and the river, collecting rocks and other treasures, hiking, climbing, and simply enjoying each minute of each hour of each day. One morning, Danny and I decided we wanted to have a campfire that evening with all of our canyon friends. We just needed to clear an area in a nearby field where we could all gather the June grass which covered the field, which had become dry and prickly, making the field unsuitable for our purposes. We began to pull the tall grass, planning to clear a large circular area. We tugged and yanked with all of our might, but all we could get were small handfuls of the stubborn weeds. We knew this task would take the entire day, and already our energy and enthusiasm was waning. We're waning. And then what I thought was the perfect solution came into my eight-year-old mind. I said to Danny, all we need to do is to set these weeds on fire. <laughs> we'll just burn a circle in the weeds. <laughs> he readily agreed. <laughs> and I ran to our cabin to get a few matches. <laughs> Lest any of you think that at the tender age of eight we were permitted to use matches, I want to make it clear both Dandy and I were forbidden to use them. <laughs> without adult supervision. Both of us have been warned repeatedly of the dangers of fire. However, I knew where my family kept the matches. <laughs> and we needed to clear that field. Without so much as a second thought, I ran to our cabin and grabbed a few matchsticks, making certain no one was watching. I hid them quickly in one of my pockets. Back to Danny, I ran, excited that in my pocket I had the solution to our problem. I recall thinking that the fire would burn only as far as we wanted. and then would somehow magically extinguish itself. <laughs> I struck a match on a rock 
and set the park's gin grass ablaze. It ignited as though it had been drenched in gasoline. <clears throat> At first, Danny and I were thrilled. We watched the weeds disappear. But it soon became apparent that the fire was not about to go out on its own. We panicked, and we realized there was nothing we could do to stop it. The menacing flames began to follow the wild grass of the mountainside, endangering the pine trees and everything else in their path. Finally, we had no option but to run for help. Soon, all available men and women of Vivian Park were dashing back and forth with wet burlap bags, beating at the flames in an attempt to extinguish them. After several hours, the last remaining embers were smothered. The ages old pine trees had been saved, as were the homes the flames would eventually have reached. Danny and I learned several difficult but important lessons that day. Not the least of which was the importance of obedience. There are rules and laws to help ensure our physical safety. Likewise, the Lord has provided guidelines and commandments to help ensure our spiritual safety so that we might successfully navigate this often treacherous mortal existence and return eventually to our Heavenly Father. Centuries ago, to a generation steeped in the tradition of animal sacrifice, Samuel boldly declared, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. In this dispensation, the Lord revealed to the prophet Joseph Smith that he requires a heart and a willing mind, and the willing and obedient shall eat the good of the land of Zion in these last days. All prophets, ancient and modern, have known that obedience is essential to our salvation. Nephi declared, I will go and do the things which the Lord hath commanded, though others faltered in their faith and their obedience. Never once did Nephi fail to do that which was the Lord asked of him. Untold generations have been blessed as a result. A soul-stirring account of obedience is that of Abraham and Isaac. How painfully difficult it must have been for Abraham, in obedience to God's command, to take his beloved Isaac into the land of Moriah to offer him as a sacrifice. Can we imagine the heaviness of Abraham's heart as he journeyed to the appointed place? Surely anguish must have wrecked his body and tortured his mind as he bound Isaac laid him on the altar, and took the knife to slay him. With unwavering faith and implicit trust in the Lord, he responded to the Lord's command. 
How glorious was the pronouncement. And with what wondered, welcome did it come. Lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. Abraham had been tried and tested, and for his faithfulness and obedience, the Lord gave him this glorious promise. Quote, In thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. Although we're not asked to prove our obedience in such a dramatic and heart-wrenching way, obedience is required of us as well. Declared President Joseph F. Smith in October 1873, Obedience is the first law of heaven. Said President Gordon B. Hinckley, The happiness of the Latter-day Saints, the peace of the Latter-day Saints, the progress of the Latter-day Saints, the prosperity of the Latter-day Saints, and the eternal salvation and exaltation of this people lie in walking in obedience to the counsels of God. Obedience is a hallmark of prophets. It has provided strength and knowledge to them throughout the ages. It is essential for us to realize that we as well are entitled to this source of strength and knowledge. It is readily available to each of us today as we obey God's commandments. Throughout the years, I've known countless individuals who have been particularly faithful and obedient. I've been blessed and inspired by them. May I share with you an account of two such individuals? Walter Krause was a steadfast member of the Church who, with his family, lived in what became known as East Germany following the Second World War. Despite the hardships he faced because of the lack of freedom in that area of the world at the time, Brother Krause was a man who loved and served the Lord. He faithfully and conscientiously fulfilled each assignment given to him. The other man, Johann Dendorfer, a native of Hungary, was converted to the Church in Germany and was baptized there in 1911 at the age of 17. Not too long afterward, he returned to Hungary. Following the world, Second World War, he found himself virtually a prisoner in his native land, in the city of Debrecen. Freedom had also been taken from the people of Hungary. Brother Walter Krause, who did not know Brother Dendorfer, received the assignments to be a, his home teacher and to visit him on a regular basis. Brother Krause called his home teaching companion and said to him, We've received an assignment to visit Brother Johann Dendorfer. Would you be available to go with me this week to see him? 
and give him a gospel message. And then he added, Brother Dendorfer lives in Hungary. His startled companion asked, When will we leave? Tomorrow came the reply from Brother Krause. When will we return home? Asked the companion. Brother Krause responded, Oh, in about a week, if we get back. Close to Away the two home teaching companions went to visit Brother Dendorfer, traveling by train and bus on the northeastern area of Germany to Debrecen, Hungary, a substantial journey. Brother Dendorfer had not had home teachers since before the war. Now, when he saw these servants of the Lord, he was overwhelmed with gratitude that they had come. At first, he declined to shake hands with them. Rather, he went to his bedroom and took from a small cabinet a box containing his tithing that he saved for years. He presented the tithing to his home teachers and said, Now I am current with the Lord. Now I feel worthy to shake the hands of servants of the Lord. Brother Krause told me later that he had been touched beyond words to think that this faithful brother, who had no contact with the Church for many years, had obediently and consistently taken from his meager earnings 10 percent with which to pay his tithing. He'd saved it, not knowing when or if he might have the privilege of paying it. Brother Walter Krause passed away nine years ago at the age of 94. He served faithfully and obediently throughout his life and was an inspiration to me and to all who knew him. When asked to fill assignments, he never questioned, he never murmured. And he never made excuses. My brothers and sisters, the great test of this life is obedience. We will prove them herewith, saith the Lord, to see if they will do all things, whatsoever the Lord their God shall command them, declared the Savior, for all who will have a blessing at my hands shall abide the law which was appointed for that blessing and the conditions thereof, as were instituted from before the foundation of the world." No greater example of obedience exists than that of our Savior. Of Him, Paul observed, though He were a son, yet He learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation to all them that obey him. The Savior demonstrated genuine love of God by living the perfect life, by honoring the sacred mission that was his. Never was he haughty, never was he puffed up with pride, never was he disloyal, never was he humble. Ever was he sincere, ever was he obedient. 
Though he was led up of the Spirit into the wilderness, be tempted by that master of deceit, even the devil, though he was physically weakened from fasting forty days and forty nights, and was hungered, yet when the evil one proffered Jesus the most alluring and tempting proposals, he gave to us a divine example of obedience by refusing to deviate from what he knew was right. When faced with the agony of Gethsemane, where he endured such pain that his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground, he exemplified the obedient son by saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. As the Savior instructed his early apostles, so he instructs you and me. Quote, follow thou me. Are we willing to obey? The knowledge which we seek, the answers for which we yearn, and the strength which we desire today to meet the challenges of a complex and changing world can be ours when we willingly obey the Lord's commandments. I quote once again the words of the Lord. He that keepeth God's commandments receiveth truth and light until he's glorified in truth and knoweth all things. It is my humble prayer that we may be blessed with the rich rewards promised to the obedient. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, amen. I received a special gift last Christmas that brought with it many memories. My niece gave it to me. It's among the things I had left in our old family home when I moved out after I was married. The gift is this little brown book I hold in my hand. It is a book that was given to the LDS servicemen who entered the armed forces during World War II. I personally view this book as a gift from President Heber J. Grant, his counselors J. Reuben Clark, Jr., and David O. McKay. In the front of the book, these three prophets wrote, The incidents of the armed forces do not permit our keeping in constant personal touch with you, either directly or by personal representation. Our next best course is to put in your hands such portions of the modern revelations and explanations of the principles of the gospel as shall bring to you, wherever you may be, renewed hope and faith, and likewise comfort, consolation, and peace of spirit. Today we find ourselves in another war. This is not a war of armaments. It's a war of words, deeds, and thought. And more than ever, we need to be reminded of the commandments. Secularism is beginning to be the norm. 
and many of its beliefs and practices are in direct conflict with those instituted by the Lord Himself for the benefit of His children. In this little brown book, immediately after the letter from the First Presidency, is a preparatory note to the men in service entitled, Obedience to Law is Liberty. The note draws a parallel between military law, which are for the good of the men in service, and divine law. It states, In the universe, too, where God is in command, there is law, universal, eternal law, with certain blessings and immutable penalties. The final words of the note focus on God's obedience to God's law. If you wish to return to your loved ones with your head erect, if you would be a man and live abundantly, then observe God's law. In so doing, you can add to these priceless freedoms which you are struggling to preserve another on which others may well depend, freedom from sin. For truly, obedience to law is liberty. Why did the phrase, obedience to law is liberty, ring so true to me at that time? Why does it ring true to all of us now? Perhaps it is because we have a revealed knowledge of our pre-mortal history. We recognize that when God, the Eternal Father, presented His plan to us at the beginning of time, Satan wanted to alter the plan. He said he would redeem all mankind. Not one soul would be lost, and Satan was confident that he could deliver on his proposal. But there was an unacceptable cost, the destruction of man's agency, which, was, which and is a gift given by God. About this gift, President Harold B. Lee said, Next to life itself, free agency is God's greatest gift to mankind. When then it was a small, no small thing for Satan to disregard man's agency. In fact, it became the principal issue over which the war in heaven was fought. Victory in the war in heaven was a victory for man's agency. Satan, however, was not done. His backup plan, the plan he has been executing since the time of Adam and Eve, was to tempt men and women essentially to prove that we are undeserving of God's given gift of agency. Satan has many reasons for what he does. Perhaps the most powerful is the motive of revenge. But he also wants to make men and women miserable like he is miserable. None of us should ever underestimate how driven Satan is to succeed. His role in God's eternal plan creates opposition in all things and tests our agency. Each choice you and I make is a test of our agency, whether we choose to be obedient or disobedient to the commandments of God is actually a choice between liberty and eternal life 
and captivity and death. This fundamental doctrine is clearly taught in 2 Nephi, the second chapter. Wherefore men are free according to the flesh, and all things are given them which are expedient unto man. And they are free to choose liberty and eternal life through the great mediator, mediator of all men are to choose captivity and death according to the captivity and power of the devil. For he seeketh that all men might be miserable like unto himself. In many respects, this world has always been at war. I believe when the First Presidency sent me this little brown book, they were more concerned about the greater war than World War II. I also believe they hoped the book would be a shield of faith against Satan and his armies in this greater war, the war against sin, and serve as a reminder to me to live the commandments of God. In one way to measure ourselves and compare us to previous generations is by the standard, the oldest standard known to man, the Ten Commandments. For much of the civilized world, particularly the Judeo-Christian world, the Ten Commandments have been the most acceptable and enduring delineation between good and evil. In my judgment, four of the Ten Commandments are taken as seriously today as ever. As a culture, we disdain and condemn murder, stealing, and lying, and we still believe in the responsibility of children to their parents. But as a larger society, we routinely dismiss the other six commandments. If worldly priorities are in indication, we certainly have other gods we put before the true God. We make idols of celebrities and lifestyle, of wealth, and yes, sometimes even graven images or objects. We use the name of God in all kinds of profane ways, including our exclamations and our swearing. We use the Sabbath day for our biggest games, our most serious recreation, our heaviest shopping, and virtually everything else but worship. We treat sexual relations outside marriage as a recreation and entertainment, and coveting has become far too common way of life. Prophets from all dispensations have consistently warned against two of the most serious commandments, the ones regarding murder and adultery. I see a common basis for these two critical commandments the belief that life itself is a prerogative of God, and our physical bodies, the temples of mortal life, should be created within the bounds God has set. For man to substitute his own rules for the laws of God on either end of life is the height of presumption and the depth of sin. The main effect of these depreciating attitudes about the sanctity of marriage are the consequences to families. The strengthening of families is deteriorating at an alarming rate. This deterioration is causing widespread damage to society. 
I see a direct cause and effect. As we give up commitments and fidelity to our marriage partners, we remove the glue that holds our society together. A useful way to think about the commandments is they are loving counsel from an all-wise Heavenly Father. His goal is our eternal happiness, and His commandments are a roadmap He has given us to return to Him, which is the only way we will be eternally happy. How significant is the home and the family to our eternal happiness? On page 114 of my little brown book, it states, Indeed, our heaven is little more than a projection of our eternal, of our homes in eternity. The doctrine of the family and the home was recently reiterated in a great, with great clarity and forcefulness in the proclamation, the family, a proclamation to the world. It declared the eternal nature of the family and then explained the connection to temple worship. The proclamation also declared the law upon which eternal happiness of families is predicated, namely, the sacred powers of procreation are employed only between a man and a woman lawfully wedded as husband and wife. God reveals to His prophets that there are moral absolutes. Sin will always be sin. Disobedience to the Lord's commandments will always deprive us of His blessings. The world changes constantly and dramatically, but God, His commandments, and promised blessings do not change. They are immutable, unchanging. Men and women receive their agency as a gift from God, but their liberty, in turn their eternal happiness, comes from obedience to His law, as Alma counseled his errant son, Corianton. Wickedness never was happiness. In this day of the restoration of the fullness of the gospel, the Lord has again revealed to us the blessings promised us by being obedient to His commandments. In Doctrine and Covenants, section 130, we read, There is a law irrevocably decreed in the heavens before the foundation of this world upon which all blessings are predicated. And when we obtain any blessing from God, it is by obedience to that law upon which it is predicated. Surely there could not be any doctrine more strongly expressed in the scriptures than the unchanging commandments and their connection to our happiness and well-being as individuals, as families, and as a society. These are moral absolutes. Disobedience to the Lord's commandments will always deprive us of His blessings. These things do not change. In a world where the moral compass of society is faltering, the restored gospel of Jesus Christ never wavers, nor should its stakes and wards, its families, nor its individual members. We must not pick and choose which commandments we think are important, important to keep, 
but acknowledge all of God's commandments. We must stand firm and steadfast, having a perfect confidence in the Lord's consistency and perfect trust in His promises. May we be a light on the hill, an example in keeping the commandments that never change and will never change. Just as this small book encouraged LDS servicemen to stand morally firm in times of war, may we in this latter day be a beacon to the whole earth and particularly to God's children who are seeking the Lord's blessings. Of this I testify in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. One evening several years ago, my wife and I were visiting the home of one of our sons and his wife and children for dinner. It was a typical event for a family with small children. There was much noise and even more fun. Shortly after dinner, our four-year-old granddaughter Anna and I were still sitting at the table. Realizing that she had my full attention, she stood up straight on a bench and fixed her eyes on me. When she was sure that I was looking at her, she solemnly ordered me to watch and learn. (laughs) She then danced and sang a song for me. Anna's instruction to watch and learn was wisdom from the mouth of a babe. We can learn so much by watching and then considering what we have seen and felt. In that spirit, let me share with you a few principles I have observed by watching and learning from wonderful, faithful marriages. These principles build strong, satisfying marriages that are compatible with heavenly principles. I invite you to watch and learn with me. First, I have observed that in the happiest marriages, both the husband and wife consider their relationship to be a pearl beyond price, a treasure of infinite worth. They both leave their fathers and mothers and set out together to build a marriage that will prosper for eternity. They understand that they walk a divinely ordained path. They know that no other relationship of any kind can bring as much joy, generate as much good, or produce as much personal refinement. Watch and learn. The best marriage partners regard their marriages as priceless. Next, faith. Successful eternal marriages are built on the foundation of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and adherence to His teachings. I have observed that couples who have made their marriages priceless practice the patterns of faith. They attend sacrament and other meetings every week, hold family home evening, pray and study the scriptures together and as individuals, and pay an honest tithing. Their mutual quest is to be obedient and good. They do not consider the commandments to be a buffet from which they can pick and choose only the most appealing offerings. Faith is the foundation of every virtue that strengthens marriage. Strengthening faith strengthens marriage. 
Faith grows as we keep the commandments, and so do the harmony and joy in marriage. Thus, keeping the commandments is fundamental to establishing strong eternal marriages. Watch and learn. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is the foundation of happy eternal marriages. Third, repentance. I have learned that happy marriages rely on the gift of repentance. It is an essential element in every good marital relationship. Spouses who regularly conduct honest self-examination and promptly take needed steps to repent and improve experience a healing balm in their marriages. Repentance helps restore and maintain harmony and peace. Humility is the essence of repentance. Humility is, not, is, is selfless, not selfish. It doesn't demand its own way or speak with moral superiority. Instead, humility answers softly and listens kindly for understanding, not vindication. Humility recognizes that no one can change someone else, but with faith, effort, and the help of God, we can undergo our own mighty change of heart. Experience, experiencing the mighty change of heart causes us to treat others, especially our spouses, with meekness. Humility means that both husbands and wives seek to bless, help, and lift each other, putting the other first in every decision. Watch and learn. Repentance and humility build happy marriages. Fourth, respect. I have observed that in wonderful, happy marriages, husbands and wives treat each other as equal partners. Practices from any place or any time in which husbands have dominated wives or treated them in any way as second-class partners in marriage are not in keeping with divine law and should be replaced by correct principles and patterns of behavior. Husbands and wives in great marriages make decisions unanimously, with each of them acting as a full participant and entitled to an equal voice and vote. They focus first on the home and on helping each other with their shared responsibilities. Their marriages are based on cooperation, not negotiation. Their dinner hour and the family time that follows become the center of their day and the object of their best efforts. They turn off electronics and forego personal entertainment in order to help with household duties. To the extent possible, they read with their children every night and both participate in putting the little ones to bed. They retire to their bed together. As their duties and circumstances permit, husbands and wives work side by side in doing the most important work there is, the work we do in our own homes. Where there is respect, there is also transparency, which is a key element of happy marriages. There are no secrets about relevant matters in marriages based on mutual respect and transparency. Husbands and wives make all decisions about finances together, and both have access to all information. Loyalty is a form of respect. Prophets teach 
that successful marriage partners are fiercely loyal to each other. They keep their social media use fully worthy in every way. They permit themselves no secret Internet experiences. They freely share with each other their social network passwords. They do not look at the virtual profiles of anyone in any way that might betray the sacred trust of their spouses. They never do or say anything that approaches the appearance of impropriety, either virtually or physically. Watch and learn. Terrific marriages are completely respectful, transparent, and loyal. Fifth, love. The happiest marriages I have seen radiate obedience to one of the happiest commandments, that we live together in love. Speaking to husbands, the Lord commanded, Thou shalt love thy wife with all thy heart, and shalt cleave unto her and none else. A church handbook teaches, The word cleave means to be completely devoted and faithful to someone. Married couples cleave to God and one another by serving and loving each other and by keeping covenants in complete fidelity to one another and to God. Both the husband and wife leave behind their single life and establish their marriage as their first priority. They allow no other person or interest to have greater priority than keeping the covenants they have made with God and each other. Watch and learn. Successful couples love each other with complete devotion. There are those whose marriages are not as happy as they would wish, who have never married, are divorced, or single parents, or for various reasons are not in a position to marry. These circumstances can be full of challenge and heartbreak, but they need not be eternal. To those of you in such situations who nevertheless cheerfully do all things that lie in your power to persevere, may heaven bless you richly. Seek after the ideal of forming an eternal marriage including by striving or preparing to be a worthy spouse. Keep the commandments and trust the Lord and His perfect love for you. One day, every promised blessing concerning marriage will be yours. One of the sweetest verses in the Book of Mormon states simply, And they were married and given in marriage, and were blessed according to the multitude of the promises which the Lord had made unto them. The promises of the Lord are extended to all those who follow the pattern of life that builds happy, holy marriage relationships. Such blessings come as the delightful, predictable consequences of faithfully living the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am grateful for my wonderful wife, Kathy, who is the love of my life. Marriage is a gift from God to us. The quality of our marriages is a gift from us to Him. I bear testimony of the marvelous plan of our loving Heavenly Father, which provides for eternal, wondrous marriage. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. A young father recently learned of the passing of his extraordinary second-grade teacher. In memory of her, he wrote, of all the feelings and experiences I remember, the feeling most prevalent in my mind is comfort. She may have taught me spelling, grammar, and math, 
but far more importantly, she taught me to love being a child. In her classroom, it was okay to spell a word wrong here and there. We'll work on it, she'd say. It was okay to spill or tear or smudge. We'll fix it and we'll clean it up, she would respond. It was okay to try, okay to stretch, okay to dream, and okay to enjoy those pleasures that come from the insignificant things that only children find exciting. One of the greatest influences a person can have in this world is to influence a child. Children's beliefs and self-worth are shaped early in their lives. Everyone within the sound of my voice has the power to increase a child's confidence in himself or herself and to increase a child's faith in Heavenly Father, Jesus Christ, through the words they speak. In Helaman chapter 5, we read, And now, my sons, remember. Remember that it is upon the rock of our Redeemer, who is Christ, the Son of God, that ye must build your foundation. These were the words Helaman taught his sons. And we read on, And they did remember his words, and they went forth to teach the word of God among all the people. Even though Helaman's sons were persecuted and put in prison, those words they had heard never failed them. They were protected and encircled about with a pillar of fire. Then came a voice saying to their captors, Repent ye, and seek no more to destroy my servants. It was not a voice of thunder, neither was it a voice of great tumultuous noise, but behold, it was a still voice of perfect mildness, as if it had been a whisper, and it did pierce even to the very soul. We can learn from that voice from heaven. It was not loud, scolding, or demeaning. It was a still voice of perfect mildness, giving firm direction while giving hope. How we speak to our children and the words we use can encourage and uplift them and strengthen their faith to stay on the path back to Heavenly Father. They come to this earth ready to listen. An example of a child listening happened in a fabric store. The store was crowded with shoppers when it became obvious to everyone that a mother was panicked because she had lost her young son. At first she was calling his name. Connor, she would say as she briskly walked around the store. As time passed, her voice got louder and more frantic. Soon the store security officers were notified and everyone in the store was involved in looking for the child. Several minutes passed with no success of finding him. Connor's mother, understandably, was becoming more frantic by the minute and was rapidly yelling his name over and over again. One patron, after saying a silent prayer, had the thought that Connor was probably inside the store and may be frightened as he listened to his mother scream his name. She mentioned this to another woman involved in the search, and they quickly made a plan. Together, they began to walk between the tables of fabric, quietly repeating the words, Connor, if you can hear my voice, 
say, here I am. As they walked slowly toward the back of the store, repeating that phrase, sure enough, they heard a timid, soft voice say, here I am. Connor was hiding between the bolts of fabric under a table. It was a voice of perfect mildness that encouraged Connor to respond. To speak to a child's heart, we must know a child's needs. If we pray to know those needs, the very words we may say have the power to reach into their hearts. Our efforts are magnified when we seek the direction of the Holy Ghost. The Lord said, Speak the thoughts that I shall put into your hearts, for it shall be given you in the very hour, yea, in the very moment, what ye shall say. Unfortunately, the distractions of this world prevent many children from hearing encouraging words that could shape their view of themselves. Dr. Neil Halfen, a physician who directs the UCLA Center for Healthier Children, Families, and Communities, refers to parental benign neglect. One study observed an 18-month-old and his parents. Their son seemed happy, active, and engaged, clearly enjoying time and pizza with his parents. At the end of dinner, Mom got up to run an errand, handing over care to Dad. Dad started reading phone messages while the toddler struggled to get his attention by throwing bits of pizza crust. Then Dad re-engaged, facing his child and playing with him. Soon, though, he substituted watching a video on his phone with the toddler until his wife returned. In both cases, Dr. Halfen observed a dimming of the child's internal light, a lessening of the connection between parent and child. The answer to our prayer of how to meet our children's needs may be to more often technologically disconnect. Precious moments of opportunity to interact and converse with our children dissolve when we are occupied with distractions. Why not choose a time each day to disconnect from technology and reconnect with each other? Simply turn everything off. Now, When you do this, your home may seem quiet at first. You may even feel at a loss as to what to do or say. Then, as you give full attention to your children, a conversation will begin, and you can enjoy listening to each other. We can also influence our children through the words we speak and also through the words we write to them. Nephi writes, We labor diligently to write to persuade our children to believe in Christ and to be reconciled to God. President Thomas S. Monson shared the experience of J. Hess, an airman who was shot down over North Vietnam in the 1960s. For two years, his family had no idea whether he was dead or alive. His captors in Hanoi eventually allowed him to write home but limited his message to less than 25 words. President Monson asked, What would you and I say to our families if we were in the same situation, not having seen them for over two years and not knowing if we would ever see them again? Wanting to provide something his family could recognize as having come from him, 
and also wanting to give them valuable counsel. Brother Hess wrote the following words, quote, These things are important. Temple marriage, mission, college, press on, set goals, write history, take pictures twice a year. End of quote. What words would you write to your children if you had 25 words or less? The young father I spoke about earlier who wrote about his memories of his second-grade teacher is now raising a beautiful baby daughter. He feels the heavenly trust that has been placed in him. As she grows up, what will be her future? What will he say that will sink deep into her heart? What words will encourage her, lift her, and help her to stay on the path? Will it make a difference if he takes time to whisper, You are a child of God? Will she remember someday that her father often said the words, I love everything about you? Isn't that what our Heavenly Father was saying to His Son and to all of us when He said, This is my beloved Son, and then He added, in whom I am well pleased. May the words we speak and write to our children reflect the love our Heavenly Father has for His Son, Jesus Christ, and for us. And then may we pause to listen, for a child is most capable of speaking great and marvelous things in return. I say this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. The mortal life of Jesus Christ was filled with miracles—a virgin mother, a new star, angels appearing to shepherds, the blind seeing, the lame walking, angels in Gethsemane and at the tomb, and the greatest miracle of all—His glorious resurrection. Can you imagine the scene of the eleven apostles on the mountain near Galilee when the risen Lord came to them and said, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. All nations, all the world, every creature. Was it possible? Although Jesus reassured them, they must have wondered if miracles really would accompany them in spreading the gospel. Faith overcame doubt, and Peter lifted his voice, saying, All ye that dwell at Jerusalem, hearken to my words. Jesus of Nazareth, whom ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, this Jesus God hath raised up, and we all are witnesses. There was an undeniable spiritual outpouring that day, and 3,000 souls were baptized. As Jesus promised, signs and miracles were following the faith of the believers. As the Church of Jesus Christ was restored to the earth 183 years ago, the Lord's charge to His small band of disciples echoed His words spoken centuries before. The voice of warning shall be unto all people. 
For verily the sound must go forth into all the world and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. All people, all the world, the uttermost parts of the earth, was it possible? The Savior reassured his Latter-day Saints, but could they foresee the reach and destiny of this marvelous work? They must have wondered if miracles really would accompany them in spreading the gospel. Again, faith overcame doubt, and thousands were baptized. In England, Elder Wilfred Woodruff found an entire community awaiting his arrival. The Spirit of the Lord fell upon them, and he baptized 45 preachers and several hundred members during his first month at Benbow Farm. Our day is no different. When Elder Bednar and I were missionaries approximately 40 years ago, and I can assure you that we are not the oldest of the returned missionaries sitting in the red chairs, <laughs> there were 16,000 missionaries. As President Monson reported yesterday, we now have 65,000 more than ever before. There were then 562 stakes. Today, there are more than 3,000. At that time, our wards and branches were in 59 countries. Today, we have congregations in 189 of the 224 nations and territories of the world. We are few in number, just as Nephi foretold. But at the same time, you and I are eyewitnesses of Daniel's prophetic words. The stone cut without hands is filling the whole earth. Our day is a remarkable time of miracles. Six months ago, as President Monson announced the age change for young men and young women desiring to serve missions, there was an undeniable spiritual outpouring. Faith overcame doubt, and young men and women moved forward. The Thursday following conference, I was assigned to recommend missionary calls to the First Presidency. I was amazed to see the applications of 18-year-old men and 19-year-old women who had already adjusted their plans, visited their doctors, been interviewed by their bishops and stake presidents, and submitted their missionary applications, all in just five days. Thousands more have now joined them. It's a miracle. We are grateful for the energizing faith of our sisters the growing number of missionaries from countries across the world, and the increasing number of couples ready to serve. Fifty-eight new missions have been announced, and our building and our bulging missionary training center in Provo has amazingly found a new companion in Mexico City. President Thomas S. Monson has said, We take most seriously the Savior's mandate Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. This cause will continue to go forth, changing and blessing lives. No force 
in the entire world can stop the work of God. We are witnessing the miracles of the Lord as His gospel is spreading across the world. Brothers and sisters, as surely as the Lord has inspired more missionaries to serve, He is also awakening the minds and opening the hearts of more good and honest people to receive His missionaries. You already know them or will know them. They are in your family or live in your neighborhood. They walk past you on the street, sit by you in school, and connect with you online. You, too, are an important part of this unfolding miracle. If you're not a full-time missionary with a missionary badge pinned on your coat, now is the time to paint one on your heart. Paint it, as Paul said, not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. And return missionaries. Find your old missionary tag. Don't wear it, but put it where you can see it. The Lord needs you now more than ever to be an instrument in His hands. All of us have a contribution to make to this miracle. Every righteous member of the Church has thought about how to share the gospel. Some share the gospel naturally, and we can learn a lot from them. Some struggle and wonder how to do better, wishing that guilty feeling we sometimes feel would find somewhere else to go. Our desire to share the gospel takes all of us to our knees, and it should, because we need the Lord's help. President Monson has asked that we pray for those areas where our influence is limited and where we are not allowed to share the gospel freely. As we earnestly and unitedly petition our Father in Heaven, the Lord will continue to open important doors for us. We also pray for our own opportunities to share the gospel. The Apostle Peter said, Be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh a reason for the hope that is in you. With the confusion and commotion of today's world, it's not surprising that fewer people are attending their places of worship. Although many want to be closer to God and understand, better understand the purpose of life, they have unanswered questions. Many have hearts open to the truth. But as the prophet Amos described, they are running to and fro seeking the word of God and cannot find it. You can help answer their questions. In your everyday conversations, you can add to their faith in Christ. The Savior said, Hold up your light that it may shine unto the world. Behold, I am the light which ye shall hold up. I promise you, as you pray to know with whom to speak, Names and faces will come into your mind. Words to speak will be given in the very moment you need them. Opportunities will be open to you. Faith will overcome doubt, and the Lord will bless you with your very own miracles. The Savior taught us how to share the gospel. 
I like the story of Andrew who asked, Master, where dwellest thou? Jesus could have responded with the location where he lived, but instead he said to Andrew, Come and see. I like to think that the Savior was saying, Come and see not only where I live, but how I live. Come and see who I am. Come and feel the Spirit of the Lord. We don't know everything about that day, but we do know that when Andrew found his brother Simon, he declared, We have found the Christ. To those who show an interest in our conversations, we can follow the Savior's example by inviting them to come and see. Some will accept our invitation and others will not. We all know someone who has been invited several times before accepting an invitation to come and see. Let's also think about those who once were with us but who now we rarely see, inviting them to come back and see once more. We respect each person's choice and timing. The Lord said, Let every man choose for himself. A person's lack of interest need not diminish our bonds of friendship and love. Whether or not the invitation is accepted, as you invite others to come and see, you will feel the approval of the Lord. And with that approval, an added measure of faith to share your beliefs again and again. For those using the Internet and mobile phones, there are new ways to invite others to come and see. Let's make sharing our faith online more a part of our daily lives. LDS.org, Mormon.org, Facebook, Twitter all provide opportunities to share the gospel Young members in Boston started several blogs. Those who joined the Church began their learning online, followed by discussions with missionaries. This experience also helped the youth have greater faith in talking about the gospel in person. One of them said, This isn't missionary work. This is missionary fun. We are all in this together. With fellow ward members and missionaries, we plan and pray and help one another. Please, keep the full-time missionaries in your thoughts and prayers. Trust them with your family and friends. The Lord trusts them and has called them to teach and bless those who seek Him. President Paulo Cretley of the Mozambique Maputo Mission shared this experience. It is common in Mozambique for couples to live their lives together without being married because African tradition requires an expensive dowry to marry, a dowry most couples can't afford. Members and missionaries thought and prayed about how to help the answer to their prayers was that they would emphasize the law of chastity and the importance of marriage and eternal families. 
And while helping couples to repent and legally marry, they would teach of the happiness that only comes through following Jesus Christ. This is a picture of couples from two different cities in Mozambique. Married on Friday, they were baptized with their older children on Saturday. Friends and family were invited to come and see, and hundreds did come and see. Following the baptism, one sister said, we needed to choose whether to follow the traditions of our fathers or to follow Jesus Christ. We chose to follow Christ. You may not live in Mozambique, but in your own way, in your own culture, you can share the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. Pray to your Heavenly Father. This is His sacred work. He will guide you in what to do. He will open doors, remove roadblocks, and help you overcome obstacles. The Lord declared, The voice of warning shall be unto all people by the mouths of my disciples, and none shall stay them. I testify that the voice of the Lord shall be unto the ends of the earth, that all that will hear may hear. It's a miracle. It is a miracle. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.